Welcome to the ISA Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture and is brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. We provide full-length educational talks by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners to keep you up to date with new developments in arboriculture. Today's talk is by Dr. Dean Nicole, who is the Director and Head of Research at the Currency Creek Arboretum, which is a nationally renowned eucalyptics research arboretum. This podcast features his talk, The Eucalypts, Diversity and Ecology of Australia's Iconic Tree. It was originally presented at the ISA International Conference in Parramatta, Australia, in July 2011. Thank you and welcome everybody. Um, I'm just going to mix things up just for a moment and ask the first question. Um, how many of you guys here are from outside of Australia? Good, about half of you, that, that's excellent. Um, this, this talk is going to be maybe a little bit more relaxing than some of the other talks because it's very non-specific, it's going to be very generic. Um, in what I talk about, apart from the fact that I really am just going to be talking about the eucalypts, um, because eucalypts are my passion, um, and I'm glad I don't have to introduce myself, thanks Mike, um, because then I can get through a lot more, more slides. Uh, but hopefully what you'll get out of this um, seminar is I'd like to give you a little bit of a, I guess an introduction to the diversity of the eucalypts, um, and hopefully inspire you and, and hopefully uh, put forward a few things that might surprise you in terms of the eucalypts. I mean, we've all heard of the eucalypts, um, and we probably have all seen them, even outside of Australia. Uh, but I'll go through and show you some interesting slides and talk, a, talk mostly about their diversity and ecology, but I'll touch on a few other things as well, such as the arboretum that I've established, uh, and maybe touch on a few other things, such as tree assessment, as we go through as well. So we'll see how far we get. Uh, I like to start on this slide because, I mean, it looks like a fairly arid environment. This is right smack bang in the middle of Australia. Uh, this is Mount Leichhardt, named after the early German explorer who was lost in the Australian outback. Um, and, I mean, scenes like this is why I'm so passionate about Australian trees in general, but, but particularly eucalypts. Uh, all those greyish-blue mallees growing all over the hills there are actually a eucalypt species. It's a mallee eucalypt species. A mallee is a, a multi-stemmed, shrub-like uh, tree. And it's actually an unnamed species that, that's only known from a few mountains out in this area. So the fact that you can still find these unnamed eucalypt species, and I mean eucalypts, you know, you'd walk into these things if you, if you weren't watching where you were going. So it's a fairly conspicuous thing out there, yet it's completely new to science. Um, it hasn't been formally described yet. It's not known at all in cultivation, uh, so we know very little about it. So I guess it's all these unknowns that, that drive me to want to know more about them. The other thing about this particular mountain um, is it really illustrates the diversity in, in form between different species of eucalypts. Um, you can still see all those greyish uh, crowned trees or mallees all over the hill. That's our unnamed species, but we've also got the ghost gums. They're the white bark trees growing all over it. So there's two eucalypt species that look vastly different, but are growing in the same sort of environment there. This is what most people think of when they think of a gum tree, though. Um, fairly, fairly large woodland or, or forest tree. Uh, this really typifies uh, agricultural landscapes through, through Australia. Um, but there's a lot more diversity than just that. They actually vary from low-growing ground cover type plants, like the one on the, the lower right there, 
Uh, that's growing on the south coast of Western Australia. Uh, that species you can basically walk over the top of. And that's one that's now been growing, grown in cultivation as a rockery type plant, as a container plant. And the eucalypts also include the, some of the tallest uh, and biggest plants in the world, uh, such as here we've got the carry trees from southwestern Western Australia. And, and that's actually a fire lookout they've built on top of it there. So rather than build a tower and uh, put a lookout on the top, as a fire lookout, they use just the tall trees there. And in fact, the tallest flowering plants in the world and the tallest hardwood trees in the world are eucalypts um, from, from Tasmania and Victoria, the mountain ash eucalyptus regnans. So they're very variable in form. Um, but remarkably, they're very restricted in natural distribution. There's about a thousand odd species and subspecies of eucalypts. So it's a very large group of plants. Um, within Australia, it's only exceeded by acacia, which, which has about 1,200 different species, but they're mostly shrubby plants. There are some tree species, but eucalypts are the dominant tree group in Australia. And it truly is an Australian group. Uh, out of that 1,000-odd species, only about 12 of them don't grow naturally in Australia. Those 12 species extend to the to the islands to the north, so mainly New Guinea, Indonesia, and then one, one species extends just north of the equator into the southern Philippines. That's this species here, Eucalyptus deglupta, which grows naturally on, um, on the edges of rainforest. Um, there's no eucalypts that are known to grow naturally in New Zealand, uh, at least these days. They're, they're, there are some fossil records from there. Um, and there's no eucalypts that grow naturally on any of the other continents. However, they are widespread now as cultivated trees right around the world. When I talk about the eucalypts, I'm using the word eucalypt as a common name, a bit like we use the word pine tree. Um, and it actually encompasses three different genera of trees. They are eucalyptus with about 800 species, Carimbia with about 100 species, and Angophora with about 12 species. Collectively, they're the eucalypts. I've got there an example of, or several examples of each one of the genera there. The relationship between these three genera is that Carimbia and Angophora are actually sister to one another, so they're closely related, and those two genera together are then related to Eucalyptus. They're in the family Myrtaceae. Um, there's a whole suite of characters that actually together define the eucalypts. But probably the most well-known one is the bud cap to the flower. That's this structure here. And what that is, is effectively uh, what are the petals in most flowers. They've become woody in the eucalypts, and they're not the colourful part of the flower that attracts the pollinator. They're just there to protect the stamens and the anthers, um, and it's released to, um, to show the showy part of the flower that generally attracts pollinators. In this case, it's, it's birds, um, but in a lot of species, it's insects. All eucalypts are, are pollinated by animals. None of them are wind-pollinated. Not all eucalypts have, have this bud cap feature. Like I said, it's a whole suite of characters that define the eucalypts, but the bud cap is common to a lot of them. Um, and they can be very ornamental trees, particularly when in flower, such as this species here. This is uh, the Western Australian red flowering gum. It's a Carimbia species. One of the features of the Carimbia species is, is that they often have their flowers in terminal panicles out on the edges of the crown, and that makes them very showy when they're in flower. Um, but it's not just the flowers that are the ornamental part of eucalypts. It can be the bark, the form, the form of the plant, uh, the leaves, uh, the fruits. There's all sorts of features. Another Carimbia species here. This is another Carimbia species. You might ask yourself, where are the leaves? That's actually one of the deciduous species of eucalypts. Uh, th there's about 10 different species of eucalypts, all from tropical Australia, that are summer deciduous, uh, or rather, I should say, dry season deciduous. Uh, and they lose their leaves through the dry season to conserve moisture. And just before the wet season breaks in the tropics, they produce their flower buds, flower en masse, and then they'll produce the, uh, the leafy growth 
through the wet season. Uh, there's no winter deciduous species of eucalypts, even though they do form the snow line uh, in most parts of Australia. Just sticking with Corimbia for a little bit, uh, the Corimbias go under all sorts of common names, such as bloodwoods, the spotted gums, lemon-scented gums, they all go under the genus of Corimbia. Corimbia is generally a tropical genus of the eucalypts, um, the most diversity is across tropical Australia, but they do extend as far south as um, eastern Victoria and the northern parts of southern Austra uh, South Australia and also the southern parts of Western Australia. But generally, they're in the tropics. This is up in the Bungle uh, Bungle Ranges in the Kimberley of Western Australia. Angophora, that, that's a small genus of about 12 species. And the main feature that distinguishes them from the from Corymbia and Eucalyptus, is that they don't have a bud cap. They actually have true petals, like most other flowers. Um, and the tr true petals open up. The showy part of the flower is still the stamens, but in most other features, they're very similar to Corymbia, uh, which is why Angophora is generally regarded as a eucalypt, just like Corymbia and Eucalyptus. All 12 species of Angophora uh, occur naturally in Eastern Australia, uh, particularly around the Sydney area, on the Sydney sandstone, um, where this species is, is endemic. This is quite a small growing eucalypt. It, it'll grow up to about five or six metres tall, and it's recently become quite popular in cultivation through southern Australia because it has its very showy um, white flowers which cover the whole crown when it's in flower. Okay, the most common uh, or widespread, perhaps I should say, eucalypt is this species here, the river red gum. Um, it's not only the most widespread species in Australia, but it's also the most uh, widespread throughout the world in terms of where it's cultivated. Uh, it almost always occurs on floodplains or seasonal creek, in seasonal creek beds. So although it occurs in a lot of the desert areas, it's not really a drought-tolerant species. It always occurs where it can access groundwater uh, or where it's subject to periodic flooding, inundation of some sort. Um, so even in a site like this where it looks fairly dry and arid, it would have access to, to groundwater. It's in a very shallow sandy creek bed there. Uh, river red gums are also quite common through uh, some of the urban areas in Australia, such as in Adelaide and in Melbourne in particular, but also a lot of the, the uh, more inland towns and cities that Australia has. And because it's such a big growing tree, um, and because it's such a long-lived species, uh, it can present a whole heap of management problems uh, when it is in an urban landscape. Uh, th these are a couple more examples of the river red gum. Uh, this here is the biggest, known biggest tree I know of in South Australia of this species. That's actually me standing at the base of it there. Um, so, so that's a big tree. There's the statistics of it up the top there. Uh, it gets its name red gum from the, from the wood here, obviously. Um, very nice coloured timber for, for furniture and they, they cut a lot of them for, for sleepers for train lines, believe it or not. But um, it's, still, it's still cut for firewood just to use for heating people's homes uh, because it is such a, a widespread species. In urban landscapes, it can often be a problem because of this feature here. It can sometimes be subject to sudden branch failure or summer limb failure uh, through, through relatively sound wood, such as the case there. In this tree here, you can see it's had a sudden branch failure there. That, that's about one and a half metres in diameter, that failure there. That gives you an idea of the size of that tree there. Um, that's in the Clare Valley of, of South Australia. Um, I'll just go into a few forest trees now. Uh, Eucalyptus grandis, the flooded gum or the rose gum. This species gets its name rose gum again from the wood of the tree. So the common names of a lot of the eucalypts aren't immediately apparent when you look at it. Uh, there's a pink gum, which has white flowers, but it has a pink timber. Um, and there's a lot of species such as mountain ash, because the timber is similar to the European ash. Uh, box species of eucalypts, because the bark or the timber is similar to European boxes. Uh, 
So when Europeans first settled Australia, they saw similarities between uh, the eucalypts here and the European trees that they were familiar with, and so they um, coined them uh, names accordingly. Uh, this is Eucalyptus regnans. Uh, it's currently regarded to be the, the tallest known hardwood tree and the tallest flowering plant in Australia, in the world indeed. Um, the, the tallest known plant at the moment is about 100 metres tall, actually just short of 100 metres tall, that's in, in southern Tasmania. Not as tall as the Californian redwoods, of course, uh, but the tallest ever uh, reg, regnans, Eucalyptus regnans, there's a lot of dispute about it, but it's somewhere between about 115 metres tall, and there's, there's dubious records up to about 145 metres tall, which, which seems quite ludicrous. Um, but the, the problem was they used to measure the trees after they cut them down uh, for timber, and they're, because they're much easier to measure when they're laying on the ground. Um, so we don't have any of those real tall trees left anymore. Uh, one thing you'll notice here is that I've used a different common name for the same species. That's because in Tasmania they call it the swamp gum and in Victoria they call it the mountain ash, uh, just to confuse us all. That's why scientific names are, are really the way you have to go, because it avoids confusion between different groups from different geographical areas. Uh, they still harvest a lot of this species for floorboards, uh, for furniture, uh, where it's marketed as Australian oak or Tasmanian oak, because Sounds much better. I mean, you're much more likely to buy some furniture made of Australian oak than of swamp gum. Um, so you get all sorts of common names for, for these trees. Another great big tree, and indeed the most massive tree currently in Australia, is, is one of this species here, the Tasmanian blue gum. It's also really commonly cultivated around the world, in, mainly in temperate areas. Uh, and... Uh, that's it, growing in its natural habitat in Tasmania, in the upper right there, and in a cultivated situation in, in Adelaide on the, on the lower left there. Uh, it's a high rainfall tree, uh, grows naturally in areas of 1,000 millimetres plus. Uh, Adelaide's about 500 millimetres annually. It's a very rapidly growing tree, uh, but in sites such as Adelaide, the trees get to a certain size where they can't expand their roots any further. Uh, and they run out of soil moisture basically through the summer, and then they tend to get crown dieback and other issues associated with it. Um, and this is often what you end up with if something's not done before the tree's cut down. Uh, that particular tree is only about 30 years old. That gives you an idea of how quickly they can grow. It's about the same age as the house. Um, almost outlived the house, but not quite. Uh, Interesting th thing here is that particular tree, although it's in fairly poor health, um, you can still see it's still got some green shoots there. And the actual life expectancy, if we disregard useful life expectancy, just look at actual life expectancy of this tree, is probably in excess of 50 or 100 years. And what they tend to do in the Adelaide Hills is they'll grow up very rapidly for the first 20 or 30 years, uh, then they'll die back or they'll or they'll structurally fail, such as this. Obviously, the crown size is much smaller. It's probably only about 5% of what it was. And so it doesn't need as much moisture, so it'll continue on for another decade or two until, again, it's using so much moisture, more moisture than what it can access in the soil, and it'll have another structural failure, or it'll die back again. And it'll cycle like this over and over again, um, which, which isn't very good in an urban situation, obviously, because these sort of things can happen. But that's the actual life expectancy, is a very long period. The useful life expectancy is actually negative one day in this case. Um, and it, there was actually, that, that tree was due to be cut down the next day. Um, it's a bit of a pity. <laughs> Another big tree laying on the ground. Uh, this again is in the Adelaide Hills. This was actually the biggest tree known of this species. I actually measured it a couple of weeks before this happened. Um, and I guess you could still, still say it's the, the biggest tree in volume of this species, but it, it's no longer alive and obviously it's laying on the ground. Um, it's a mountain white gum. Again, I've given the dimensions there. 
I've given the dimensions of a few of these trees because I'm involved in uh, the National Register of Big Trees in Australia. Now, you guys from the US will know about your National Register of Big Trees, of course, and the Australian project is, I guess, parallel paralleling that in some way, um, where we're trying to find the biggest tree of each species. And there's, you might argue there's not a lot of scientific merit in that, but it's really more about people going out, becoming enthused about trees, go, seeing that there's a big tree and thinking, geez, I know of a bigger tree than that, and going and trying, trying to find bigger ones. Um, of course, trees aren't always about the biggest and the best, but it's a good thing to get people interested in and get them out and thinking about trees and going out and trying to find bigger ones. This particular tree here, um, Adelaide had lower than average rainfall, quite dry conditions uh, up until about two years ago for about a five-year period. Um, and this tree was fine during that period, but obviously a lot of the roots actually died back. And then when we got wetter, uh, we got wetter than average rainfall for a couple of years. The tree put on a lot of growth, increased its sale area. Uh, it didn't really increase its root system accordingly or not as rapidly. Um, and so there was nothing really holding the tree on the ground except for the pure weight of the tree. Good example there of a lack of a taproot there in a mature tree. It's quite hollow all the way up. The trunk was structurally sound though, it just didn't have any roots, that tree. Spotted gum. Um, Carimbia maculata. This is one of my favourite species, actually. It, it's quite common in eastern Australia, in coastal areas. Uh, commonly planted as, as a street tree and in median strips in Perth, Adelaide and, uh, and Melbourne. Um, they can get quite big. That's a big tree. That's about 60 metres tall. This is near Batemans Bay uh, in New South Wales here. Um, they won't ever get this big in, in cultivated conditions generally because eucalypts generally grow to their conditions. So if you've got resources which are, are limited for whatever reason, um, then they won't get this big. Uh, but if resources are effectively unlimited in terms of soil, moisture, nutrients, light, such as in this case, they can grow into massive trees. Um, in Adelaide, for example, they don't get much past 20 metres tall, and they're a structurally sound tree, a long-lived tree, uh, with relatively few problems, apart from the problems that all, tree, all big trees have, such as lifting footpaths and the like. Um, so it's actually one of my favourite species, but um, a lot of people are surprised to see how big they can potentially grow if given the right conditions. Back into the carry forests of southwest Western Australia, uh, Carry is a common name of Aboriginal origin. Uh, that's where a lot of the other eucalypt name, common names of eucalypts come from. They're Aboriginal in origin. So they called these trees the Carries, and now all of us do, which is great. Eucalyptus diversicolor. Um, as, as was mentioned at the start, uh, I'm involved... Uh, I, I guess I'm a botanist, an ecologist, and an arborist, all sort of wrapped up in one. Um, but I do a lot of research as well as uh, consultancy work. And what we're actually doing here, we're involved, or I'm involved with a study where we're effectively looking at carbon sequestration in, in eucalypts. And we needed to sample some of the sun leaves. They're the leaves that are in the full sun at the top of these trees. And I'm not into climbing trees myself, um, so we're doing it here using a, a rifle just to shoot the branches off. And you can shoot branches off about as thick as your wrist. Um, and that's one way to do it. Uh, the other good way to collect leaves of, or, or fruits, if you want seed of eucalypts, um, is obviously after high wind conditions when branches are laying on the ground. Over, over time, there's, I've noticed with some species, such as, for example, spotted gums and lemon-scented gums, there's trees coming into cultivation that seem to be of poorer and poorer form. And one of the reasons behind that is partly because of poor seed collecting practices by people who sell seeds or, or nursery operators. Um, it's always easiest to collect seed of a eucalypt if you can stand at ground level and pull it off. It's also really easy to collect seed of eucalypts and trees in general if the tree's been cut down um, or if the tree's fallen down uh, from a structural failure. And so that tends to be how seed's collected of a lot of these taller growing eucalypt species, such as the spotted gums, 
Um, but even things such as the Western Australian red flowering gum, uh, Tasmanian blue gum, that's a big forest tree. Uh, seeds generally collected on, on failed trees because they're the ones where the fruits are effectively at ground level and easiest to access. And a lot of these attributes in terms of the morphology of trees but, but also their potential to fail um, can be genetically determined, uh, can be genetically uh, influenced. And so you can effectively select for trees that are more prone to failure just by collecting seed off the wrong tree. And I can sort of see a bit of a trend, I haven't got any hard data or anything, where that sort of happened in a few different eucalypt species. Um, because it's the easiest seed to collect. Um, so I think that's just starting to change now as people realise you know, what they're really doing. But because it's such a long-term process from collecting seed to growing a tree to see what it looks like to then collecting seed of that generation, you know, you're talking 20 or 30 years generally, there's a big time lag there. And so some of the problems we're seeing at the moment really originated 20 or 30 years ago or more. And whereas all the good work we're doing now, uh, we'll start to see really the, the real benefits of that again in 20 or 30 years' time. All right, I've talked a little bit about some big eucalypts. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about some smaller growing ones now. Because of all thousand-odd eucalypt species there are, Almost half of them are Mallee eucalypts. Now, that's a classic Mallee habit there. Mallee is a word of Aboriginal origin again. Uh, it generally means a multi-stem tree originating from an underground uh, lignotuber or Mallee root. It's basically a woody mass of dormant vegetative buds. Oh, hopefully, I've got a slide of that coming up. Um, and so, yeah, 400-odd species. So not all eucalypts are your dirty, great, big gum trees. A lot of them are these smaller ones. Um, there's also a lot of woodland species of eucalypts. And this is how they look in the wild. Um, that hasn't been form pruned at all. It hasn't been, hasn't been touched. It's probably, probably never even been walked over by anybody. This is right out in the desert of, in, the, in the middle of Australia. So, I mean, if that's what they look without any care, you know, th these trees have a lot of potential if they're selected for and if they're brought into cultivation where you can actually manipulate things a little bit and make them even better. Um, so the woodland trees account for maybe a quarter of all the eucalypt species. And even within the mallees, those multi-stem species, the diversity is, um, is quite great. Uh, for example, here you've got the very open, wispy type mallee species. Now these are really good if you want to um, grow other plants underneath them because they don't cast a dense shade um, and they're not particularly competitive for near surface soil moisture. Um, in other words, they're deeper rooted. And that's one of the reasons why you get all these other heathy type species growing underneath them in the wild. So in terms of growing a eucalypt in a garden bed type situation, this might be something you prefer over something that's going to ca cast a dense shade and going to be shallow-rooted where you really can't get anything growing underneath it. Here we've got a very dense-crowned mallee species. Um, this is growing on the south coast of Victoria, pretty well on pure limestone. Um, so you might argue that's not really a soil at all, it's just rock. Uh, but it seems to grow quite well there. One of the things that this series of slides hopefully will will help to illustrate, is that eucalypts aren't particularly adaptable in terms of the sites they'll grow on. Um, as a group, obviously there's a eucalypt for almost any sort of site you can think of. But within each individual species, whoops, within each individual species, they're not very um, adaptable to different site conditions. For example, this species here grows really well on coastal limestone, but it's not salt tolerant. It won't grow on clay soils. Uh, it's not frost tolerant. Whereas this species here has a whole different set of uh, environmental variables which, which it'll grow under. So as a group, there's a eucalypt for almost any situation, but individually, each species uh, has quite a small range of environmental variables that it'll grow successfully under. 
Okay, there, there's an example of what a eucalypt mallee root or lignituba actually looks like. Um, this is from a 12-year-old mallee eucalypt that, um, that I dug up. Ground level was about here on it, so that gives you an idea of how much of the lignituba is actually under the ground. Um, you can see it was single stem there, and a lot of mallee eucalypts start out as single stem plants. And what happens is if it's burnt in a fire or if it's damaged or cut off, in this, as is the case here, this is actually just a mass of dormant vegetative buds. And they all have the ability to shoot out uh, once the top of the plant is damaged. Um, so if this plant was left in the ground, what you'd find is that there'd be uh, literally hundreds of shoots initially, but shoot-to-shoot -shoot competition. Eventually, you'd be left with just a few shoots that form that typical Mallee-type uh, habit. Um, and in terms of managing Mallees in a, in a cultivated situation, such as in an urban landscape, you almost have to treat them and prune them to simulate a fire. That is, you'd prune them all off at ground level, let them all grow up again, um, and you might do that periodically every 5 or 10 or 15 years, depending on how tall you actually want to let them grow. Uh, there's a lot of interest in Mallee eucalypts at the moment as well because obviously they have the ability to sequester a lot of carbon in the Mallee root. Um, I mean, that, that's quite a bit of growth, obviously, that the tree's invested in just 12 years from, from a seed. Mallee eucalypts, um, generally they just have terminal growth, which means they keep on growing out from, from the top or from the edges, outwards and outwards and outwards until something such as a fire or pruning or a wind-destructive event knocks it back. So in a situation like this, which is on an island off the south coast of Western Australia, this plant's been long unburnt in the wild, and so it just keeps on getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, um, and that can continue on and on, such as here. This is on Kangaroo Island in South Australia. This particular Mallee eucalypt hasn't been burnt for a very long time and it'll continue to grow upwards and upwards until um, either structural failure of the tree because it is so, so tall. But what would normally happen in the wild is that wildfire would go through. Wildfire kills all the above ground part of the plant and it would shoot out again from the lignituber or the mallee root and then start the process again. So eucalypts are very dynamic. They're, um, you know, it's very rare to have a plant... Well, trees in general are dynamic, have, as you know. But um, Mallee eucalypts in particular are very dynamic because they, over a period of 10 or 20 years, they start out as almost nothing. They can get to this size and then they go back to almost nothing again. Um, and what that means is that you can have very old Mallee eucalypts with not an awful lot to show for it. Uh, this species here isn't a true mallee because it also has the ability to reshoot from the, uh, from the stems and the branches with epicormic regrowth. But this species also has a lignituber or a mallee root. And you can just see somebody in the middle there, perhaps. That gives you an idea of the size of it. That forms a, a distinct tree ring. Um, and we've actually DNA fingerprinted each one of the stems there and surrounding trees, and we can demonstrate that uh, that ring is all genetically identical. So it started out as a single plant. Um, so th that particular tree ring is about 15 metres in diameter, and that's all originated from a lignituber that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, like a mushroom ring that eventually fragments over time, um, and you end up with a, with a ring of trees like that. But there's not much of the original... Well, there's none of the original tree actually left there. Uh, because in the middle of the ring, there's just nothing except for, for soil and other native plants. So we estimated the age of this particular individual to be about 4,000 years old. But of all, this, all the stems you can see above the ground there, the age of the actual stems is only as old as the last fire that went through. Because as another fire goes through, it's pushed back to ground level and it'll reshoot again from the base. So a lot of true Mallee eucalypts are a lot older than the big big old red gums and blue gums you see in the, in the Australian landscape. This is what they look like when they reshoot back from the base. Um, 
These two examples are where malleucalypts have been pushed over by road grading or, or a bulldozer basically on the edge of the road. Um, this slide also illustrates the juvenile leaves of eucalypts. Um, eucalypts are dimorphic, which means they have uh, two distinct leaf phases. Um, they're dimorphic in their leaves. They have the adult leaves and then they have the juvenile leaves, which can look completely different to the adult leaves. The juvenile leaves are very useful in identifying different species because they can be quite different from species to species, even if the adult material might look very similar. Here's an example of a true mallee here, um, or a clump of, of mallees. Uh, this is probably about a year after a wildfire, and you can see they've all shot back from the base. And then we've got all these other eucalypt species behind here. They're all species that actually reshoot back from epicormic shoots up the stem. Um, so that's how a mallee, the ones here, actually differ from other species of eucalypts in that they don't have the ability to reshoot back from the stems, only from the lignin tuber itself. Uh, here's another example. This might be, uh, looking at that, it might be four or five years after a bushfire event. Um, now, obviously, bushfires, <laughs> or fire, rather, isn't generally a, a very viable management strategy in an urban situation, but you can simulate a fire by pruning, um, in a, and it has exactly the same effect to a tree as firewood, except for the fact that you're not releasing nutrients back into the soil, uh, or not as rapidly anyway. Uh, another mallee species, this is right up in the north of South Australia. Um, eucalypts are interesting, or, or some species of eucalypts are interesting in very dry areas in that uh, they appear to be much more drought tolerant than anything else. I mean, the landscape there generally looks dry. It's an, it's an open acacia shrubland. All the grasses, uh, all the shrubby species are basically, uh, they're not dead, they're, they're either leafless or the leaves have shriveled up or rolled up uh, or effectively gone yellow and the plants effectively look dead. Uh, whereas, whereas here we have a, a eucalypt species high up on a rocky area um, that still looks lush and green. And that, that's one of the good things about eucalypts when they're growing in dry environments. They can be drought stressed, but they still look lush and green. Uh, in this case, I mean, this, this species here will only grow on these rocky hills in these environments. And that's because the effective rainfall that they get is a lot more than what the actual rainfall is because of the runoff from the, um, from the surrounding rocky areas. Um, and, Boulders and rocks generally also make a good mulch. They don't... Uh, so the effective rainfall there is, is much higher than, than on the plains surrounding. I'll just touch a little bit on uh, a different regeneration strategy in the eucalypts called the obligate seeders. And what that means is that they're obligated to regenerate via seed rather than from vegetative reshoots from the base of the plant. And there's about 80 species of these obligate cedar eucalypts. Uh, most of them are from Western Australia, and they're small woodland trees like this. Uh, but there's also about a dozen species from the east, southeast part of Australia, and they're much larger forest trees. And they include species such as the mountain ash um, and the alpine ash, Eucalyptus delegatensis. Um, and all these species are killed by fire. They don't produce a lignotuba. Um, and they don't have the ability, generally, to produce epicormic shoots from the trunk following fire. So if you cut one of these back to ground level, hoping to get it to rejuvenate, it, it just won't. Um, you've effectively lost it. Uh, th this is what a landscape dominated by an obligate cedar eucalypt species looks like uh, about six months or a year after fire. Every one of the black stems there was an adult individual of exactly the same age. They would have all come up prior to the last fire. And then pretty well every seedling there uh, has come up after the fire went through from seed that's actually stored in the canopy of those now dead trees. So they form these even age stands. These obligate cedar species can be very quick growing and flower at a very early age because obviously they have to produce seed in the wild before the next fire comes through or they become locally extinct uh, because there's no soil seed bank with these species. It's all just stored in the crown of the trees. 
So they have been commonly planted because they're, they're so quick growing, particularly species like the brown mallet, the blue mallet. This species here they call the bushy yate. But because they grow so quickly, because they produce a lot of flower buds and flowers and fruits from an early age, and because they don't have the lignituba, they, they are prone to being wind-thrown and to structurally fail after 10 or 20 years, which doesn't normally happen in the wild, of course, because they're burnt before that time, but in cultivation, that's what happens. So they're not a particularly long-lived tree in cultivation um, compared to a lot of other eucalypt species. Oh, okay, this is the alpine ash, which is uh, one of the taller-growing obligate species, obligate cedar species from the uh, southeastern part of Australia. Uh, alpine ash is also interesting among the eucalypts in that it... Whoops, I'll try not to kick too much around. Uh, because it produces these growth rings, annual growth rings, and that's because it occurs quite high up on mountains where there's a distinct summer and a distinct uh, winter, so it's got a distinct growing season. So you can work out the age of that tree just by counting the rings, obviously. And because it's an obligate cedar, all those trees have come up after the same fire, and that's relatively easy. But most eucalypts don't have a distinct growing season. They either grow continuously, or they grow um, depending on seasonal conditions, which in a lot of parts of Australia differs from year to year. So some species will produce growth rings, but they don't equate to annual events. They might have three growth rings in one year, and they might have any for five years after that. So you can count up the rings, but they don't actually mean anything. Uh, well, it, they, they correspond to the growth spurts of the tree, effectively. Uh, this, this is one of the most famous of the Australian trees, the Central Australian ghost gum. Uh, this is what you might call a very poor example. Uh, this is at Kings Canyon, uh, up near Uluru, or Ayers Rock in Central Australia. Uh, you can see there it's growing on almost pure sandstone, uh, low growing on the ground. And, and this is just probably 100 metres away, the exact same species growing on what effectively looks like the same site, um, just showing the difference in form. And I mean, that, that's almost a perfect street tree for a, for a lot of situations in that it's not too tall, it's got no low branches, it's dead straight. Um, but this just shows genetic variation in a species from one plant to another. Uh, if you wanted to plant a row of that and you collected seed off that particular tree, you might get half of them that look like that, which you'd really struggle to prune up and, and stake to, to look like a tree at all. Um, and that's where Australian native trees, and eucalypts in particular, have a huge disadvantage over a lot of the, the European trees and the, the North American trees because they just haven't had um, time in selection where people have selected forms and then bred from those forms on again and again and again to get superior trees um, and then basically cloned those trees so you can make them uniform. Um, we're still in the stage, in terms of eucalypts, of just discovering new species, of working out what will actually grow in these environments. And then, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 years down the track, seeing what they look like when they're mature and uh, how long they'll live and what sort of problems they might have. Uh, so Australian trees are a long way behind some of the trees from other areas just because we haven't, been, we haven't known and been working on them for as long. Obviously, a tree like this um, has a lot of potential, though, in the urban environment. Uh, I mean, obviously, it doesn't require much soil to grow in. It, it looks like one of those trees that don't have any roots. Obviously, it does. Um, and, uh, but, I mean, we just haven't trialled some of these species uh, in the urban environment. This is a hybrid species of eucalypt, or a hybrid eucalypt, I should say. Um, I'll just show this one because that's obviously the true flower there. This here is just what's called the hypanthium in botanical terms. It's effectively part of the flower bud. But this species here um, sort of tricks the pollinators like a lot of plants do uh, by making the flower bud the colourful part of the flower. Eucalypt hybrids are quite common. Eucalypts outcross, which means pollen from one tree goes to another tree. So you've got different mother and father trees with whatever the seedlings are you grow. Um, and where you bring a lot of species into cultivation, you can get hybrids. 
The thing with hybrid eucalypts is you can get really good ones, such as this one, but you tend to get a lot of variation as well. Um, again, unless you clone them. I'll just go a few, through a few other interesting eucalypts here. Um, this is uh, the lobe-fruited mallee. Uh, this species was only named about 15 years ago. It grows naturally on the south coast of Western Australia. Again, it grows on limestone soils right on the coast, so a lot of potential as a, a small ornamental eucalypt. And eucalypts are gradually becoming more common uh, as use as a, as a shrubbery-type plant, so in larger garden beds, rather than just as your, your normal park-type trees. Uh, this is one of the tropical bloodwood species from northern Australia, Corymbia dunlopiana. Always has these colourful red flowers. It's not been trialled in cultivation at all, anywhere, um, but as a tropical ornamental small eucalypt, it has a lot of potential. Uh, th this slide, I've just thrown this one in to illustrate uh, something about eucalypt identification. A lot of people have trouble identifying uh, eucalypt species. And that's probably not so much because they're difficult to identify and that the characters aren't there to, uh, to identify them. It's more that there's just so many species. Um, and most people only have experience with a small handful of species. In terms of the characteristics that you use to identify different species of eucalypts, again, it's a whole uh, suite of characters, such as the bark type, the leaf, the leaves, um, the flowers, the fruits or the gum nuts, um, but even things like, is it an obligate cedar or is it a mallee uh, type habit? But characters such as the leaf venation and the oil glands in the leaves are also really useful characters to identify different species. These two species, for example, in the buds and fruits, they're almost identical. So if you gave me a handful of buds or fruits, I couldn't tell you which is which. If you gave me a single leaf, I just hold it up to the light, immediately you can tell the difference there. Um, and because the characteristics to do with the leaf venation and the oil glands, in terms of the shape of the oil glands, the density of them, uh, whether they're island oil glands or whether they're in the intersections of the, the veins themselves, because all those characters to do with the venation and the oil glands uh, aren't affected by the environment in which the tree grows, uh, because they're sort of internal in the leaf, they're very consistent characters, which make them very powerful to um, distinguish between different species of eucalypts. Um, I'll just go back to this one for a minute. And, and the same is true for other characters. A and a good example is probably the seed of a eucalypt. I mean, eucalypt seeds, uh, they vary in size from almost like dust in some of the smaller fruited species up to coarse pepper in some of the larger fruited species. But if we take the river red gum, Eucalyptus camaldulensis, um, I could identify that from any other species by a single seed, because it has a yellow seed coat, whereas most other species have brown or black uh, or grey seed coats. So you only need a single seed to identify a river red gum. But most people will look at the bark and the leaves and the fruits and all those sort of things first. Um, so there's just little things like that that you need to know um, that can make life a lot easier sometimes. Going back to the diversity in habits and habitats of the eucalypts, I mentioned that they form the snow line in Australia, in the snowy mountains and in the highlands of Victoria. Uh, this is one of the snow gums. There's six or seven different subspecies of snow gums. They all grow on different mountain peaks uh, where they've been genetically isolated and so they look slightly different. Um, but it's interesting in that the highest altitude eucalypts that grow naturally in the world don't grow in Australia at all. They actually grow around the rims of volcanoes in Timor, in Indonesia, where they grow at much higher altitudes than this. But because it's a tropical environment, uh, you don't have the snow there. It's more of a, uh, a highland-type rainforest. Um, so it really shows the diversity of habitats. This is in central Australia again. Um, this is Mount Woodruff, which is the highest mountain in South Australia. It's one of the states here. Um, and this is a species that's just restricted to the higher parts of, of, uh, of the mountain ranges in central Australia and South Australia. 
And this is another bloodwood species. This is the second highest mountain in South Australia. It's interesting here, this species, on, on, the, on the top of the mountain it looks like that. Halfway down it looks like that. It's all the same species again. Whether there's a genetic difference in this case or whether it's environmentally caused, you know, perhaps the plants on the top are more exposed so the, the wind breaks off the terminal buds so they tend to be more branchy, whether they're burnt more or whether it's genetic, um, it's really unknown unless you trial, take seed from both those populations, trial them on the one site and determine whether it's environmental or genetic. A few more eucalypts in extreme habitats. The eucalypt down the, the bottom here, Eucalyptus brachyandra, this species in the wild always grows on sandstone cliffs. It, it doesn't grow on the plateau above, it doesn't grow on the plains below. Makes the collection of specimens and seed quite difficult. But it's probably not because it won't actually grow in those other locations, it's just outcompeted by other species. Um, so the only spot left for it is on the cliffs there, where other species it's too harsh, there's not enough soil for them to grow in. But this species has a lot of potential obviously for confined soil situations in an urban environment. This species as well, a Carimbia species, this is growing on Mount Augustus. Uh, Mount Augustus, some people regard as the, the largest rock or largest monolith in Australia, uh, but it's in Western Australia. It's about the same size or a little bit bigger than Uluru or Ayers Rock. And this species just grows in the crevices in the rocks uh, all over that particular mountain. So again, a lot of potential for... Uh, confined soil situations in an urban environment. But what we don't know is if you plant this species in a position where it'll get more resources, more moisture, more nutrients, more space generally for its roots, uh, will it look like that or will it grow into a bigger tree? Um, and again, until you've done the trials, you don't, you don't really know all that sort of thing, of course. Uh, two subspecies of the same species there. This is a case where the two subspecies differ in flower colour. Um, quite an ornamental species. Eucalyptus macrocarpa. This is one of a number of species that is reproductively mature in the juvenile leaf phase. What that effectively means is that it doesn't get your typical adult leaves that you get in a eucalypt. And there's probably 30 or 40 species like that. Um, and quite large flowers it has as well. Good example there of the bud cap coming off to reveal the showy part of the flower. Um, that photograph was actually taken at Currency Creek Arboretum. That's the arboretum where I grow all these species of eucalypts to trial them in South Australia. Uh, eucalypts phoenicia, uh, another tropical species. There's four or five tropical species with these bright orange flowers. Um, I've seen this one growing as far south as Newcastle uh, in New South Wales here. So it has potential as, a, as an ornamental tree. Eucalyptus serracea, another one with the orange flowers. In this case, again, it, it, it's reproductively mature in the juvenile leaf phase. So you've got that real contrast of the, the foliage and the, um, and the flowers. And that's what the trees of that species look like in the wild. Uh, this species is only known from three populations in the wild um, and it's not known in cultivation at all. So there's another one there we can trial. Uh, woodland Carimbia species from Central Australia. I'll just flick through these just quick enough for you to look at them. <laughs> uh, a yellow bloodwood, yellow from the, the colour of the bark. There's about 12 yellow bloodwood species. Uh, from Eastern Australia, mostly from Queensland. They all grow naturally on these sandy uh, soils which are quite low in nutrients. Um, but in cultivation they grow quite well in Adelaide and Perth. So even though they're a Queensland tree, they seem to be a little bit more adaptable than some of the other eucalypts. Lemon-scented gum is another good example uh, in this category where lemon-scented gum is restricted to central and northern Queensland, but it grows quite well in, in the southern cities of Australia, such as Melbourne, Perth and Adelaide, and Sydney here as well. Um, the octopus mallee, Eucalyptus sinulosa. This species does another deceptive things for, for the pollinators in that it gets lots of individual flowers, clusters them all together to make it look like it's got uh, one much bigger flower here. A bit like the banksias do in some of the grevilleas and hakeas. 
This species was only named, when was this named? A couple of years ago. But again, obviously, that's got a lot of potential for cultivation. Not as a tree so much, but as a smaller garden-type eucalypt or for shrubberies or, or mass plantings. Uh, that, that's Australia's rarest eucalypt. It's not the white-barked ones here. It's actually the, the ones with the uh, bunting around them there. Uh, that occurs uh, near Canberra, Canberra, actually in the New South, New South Wales side of the border, though. And that's only known from three clumps, each one about that size. Uh, I've just thrown in a few slides of rare species. This is South Australia's rarest species, Eucalyptus wyalensis. Uh, occurs in a very remote area, and it's not known if it's naturally rare or if, or if there's actually lots more of it out there, but it just occurs in such an inaccessible place that nobody really knows how far it actually extends um, in the desert areas there. Another species that doesn't get the adult leaves, um, it's reproductively mature in those juvenile leaf, leaf phase, so it's quite ornamental. Or rather, some people would consider that ornamental, others might think, oh, you know, it's too different for me. But, but it's different anyway. Uh, this is on the Nullarbor Plain on the south coast of Australia, uh, in this case in Western Australia. Another very low-growing eucalypt. In this case, this species will actually grow up to four or five metres tall, so quite a bit larger if it's in a more sheltered situa situation. Um, so in this case, it's low-growing, almost ground cover like that, because of the conditions it's growing under, not so much because of the genetics of the plant itself. Uh, this is an unnamed species from the Wallamai Wilderness on the edge of the Blue Mountains here, a stringy bark species. So even relatively close to Sydney, I mean, we're talking 50 or 100 kilometres from the, from the middle of Sydney here, there's species like this that, that still remain undescribed. And, and again, this is a big forest tree, so it's not something that's inconspicuous. Uh, one of the many ironbark species. Again, it has those juvenile leaves in the mature crown. And back to your typical Mallee species. This is in, in the Flinders Ranges of South Australia. Um, I'll just show you a few big trees, if, if we've got time. Excellent. Um, I had, I'll show you a few big trees in Australia, but before we get there, I'll just uh, show you this slide here, which is... Um, what I know is the, the tallest tree in Europe proper, which happens to be a eucalypt. Um, and that's a carry tree, like the ones I showed you from southwestern Western Australia, Eucalyptus diversicolor. Uh, and we measured that one with a height of 72 metres. Um, I don't know if anybody here knows of a taller tree in, in Europe proper, but if you do, I'd definitely love to know about it. Next to it is actually growing a bunya pine, another Australian native species from Queensland in this case. Um, and that's the tallest known bunya pine as well, at uh, 50 metres tall. Uh, so that's the carry tree there, the white-barked one. Here it is here, close up. Both these trees are only about 100 years old. So one of the reasons why eucalypts are so commonly grown overseas is because they can grow so rapidly. Um, and in a site like this, this is in Portugal, they don't have all the natural insects and pests and diseases and everything else that, uh, that make them a little bit slower growing in Australia. So there's nothing to control their growth rate, um, apart from you know, whatever the, resource, the resources are that are there. So these trees are still growing, and obviously they're, um, they're quite tall already. The tallest tree in Africa is also a eucalypt. It's a Sydney bluegum, Eucalyptus saligna in South Africa. Um, the tallest tree in America, of course, is your native redwoods there, um, but the tallest hardwood tree or flowering tree in America is also a eucalypt, and that's, um, that's either a Tasmanian bluegum off the coast of uh, California, and there's also some really big Sydney bluegums, again, in Hawaii. Uh, so eucalypts, they're big trees all around the world, uh, but you don't want to forget about all these much smaller growing species. I'll just show you a few different red gums. Uh, this is the river red gum again, Eucalyptus camargulensis, uh, because there seems to be big old trees that are, that are quite well known or famous right through Australia, and I've got a few, few images of them here. So it's a, this is Oruru in the Flinders Ranges, and this is Wulpina Pound in the background. This is the Casno tree, 
It's quite famous because it's been photographed and painted by a lot of different people over a long period of time. So we've got good photographs over time of, of how dynamic that particular tree is. It's interesting, the first thing that you know, some arborists will see when they see those two, two photographs is, is all the deadwood in the canopy of the trees. Um, and river red gums often have quite a lot of deadwood in a natural type situation because they're not particularly drought tolerant um, and they need uh, periodic inundation. This one's growing in a creek line, that one's growing on a floodplain. And so where you have maybe a decade or two that passes without flooding, the tree will die back, the canopy will get smaller, and then you'll get a flooding event and the canopy will, well, the live canopy will get larger. Um, but it's interesting with, the, with these river red gums here, the dead wood in those two trees um, is, is relatively safer than the live branches in those two trees. Um, and the reason for that isn't because the deadwood's less likely to fail, it's actually more likely to fail. And it isn't anything to do with the target zone because the target zone for the deadwood and the livewood is exactly the same. It's to do with the timing of it all. In terms of deadwood tends to fail in high wind uh, or high rain conditions when there's more load on the dead branches. The wood is dead, so it's effectively... Um, it's not changing through the day. Whereas live branch failure in river red gums tends to occur in warmer conditions, in relatively still conditions, or at least uh, in light winds. And that's where you get more activity in terms of personal activity, people underneath the crowns of these two trees. So nobody stands under the tree when it's pouring down with rain or when it's blowing an absolute gale. So if dead branches fall down, you know, they just land underneath it until people cut them up for firewood. Live branch failure is more more likely to occur when there is activity underneath the crowns of those trees. So although the dead branches are more likely to fail, overall the risk associated with them is lower. Um, in these two cases here, uh, at least where there's no structures underneath the trees. A couple more river red gums. Uh, I think I showed you this one before where I'm standing underneath it there to give you an idea of the size of it. This is the king tree, again in the Flinders Ranges of South Australia. There's a list of all the big red gums that I've measured through, mostly through South Australia. Um, you don't want to remember all of that or anything like that, obviously. But if you want to find out, if you want to see that list of big red gums and you want to find out more about the big trees, uh, go to the National Register of Big Trees, um, see what's on there. And if you know of bigger trees, definitely let the organiser know. He's a person here in Sydney or let myself know because, you know, I'm, I'm always keen to go out and look at more trees. This is a big uh, mountain blue gum up near Woodford uh, in the Blue Mountains here, 72 metres tall. So probably the biggest tree in the Blue Mountains. And very briefly, Currency Creek Arboretum, I'll just touch on that because that's where I do a lot of my research. Um, you'll see a a website address there. Go to that website if you, if you want to know more about Currency Creek Arboretum um, or some of the projects I'm involved with. But an arboretum is basically a zoo of trees. This is a specialist eucalypt arboretum. I've got about uh, between 800 and 900 different species of eucalypts growing there now. All fully vouched, all multiple plantings of each species. Uh, that's what it looked like... Oh, I better stay on that a second longer <laughs> so you can actually see it. That's what it looked like originally. Uh, the first plantings went in in uh, 1993. Uh, that's more recently, still five years ago. There's about 350 rows of trees, each, each row with between 20 and 50 trees in it. So that's what it looks like. Um, and I've measured various things there, such as growth rates, survival rates, time to first flowering, um, and we're doing all sorts of other... I'm involved with all sorts of other research there through different organisations and individuals as well. So there's an aerial photograph taken a year or two ago. That's where all the trees were collected, so that gives you an idea of where all the eucalypts have come from, all brought onto the one site. And that's where you can separate genetic differences from environmental differences, of course. There's a group of four trees of a yellow bloodwood. Uh, I think I showed a slide of this earlier, and I mentioned that this species has a lot of potential as a, as a small eucalypt in an urban situation. 
More recently, I've been inv involved in regeneration studies at the Arboretum, not just cutting trees down and seeing how they respond, but we're now doing fire trials there. So this is where the local fire authorities um, lit up a whole... There's about 300 different species in this planting. There they are going for it. They love doing that sort of thing. It's a good training drill for them. And we're basically seeing which species will regenerate following fire, how long it takes them to flower again, uh, what sort of regrowth you get. There's a really good example of the little epicormic shoots or buds that you get from the lignotuber of a eucalypt tree. And a couple more examples. That's about, oh, there you go, 60 days after a fire. So effectively, if you cut those tree, trees down, that's what they look like 60 days afterwards as well. So pruning eucalypts like this, they're not, you know, it doesn't decimate the landscape for too long because they actually come back quite rapidly. New plantings. And I'll get to the last slide, which is this one here, uh, which is just a pretty slide of a eucalypt with the moon in the background. And I don't know if we have time for questions or not, but we can leave it. I'll be around. <laughs> Thank you. This concludes Dr. Dean Nicole's discussion on eucalypts. If you would like to learn more about eucalypts, you can find additional information at the ISA Australia chapter's website, Arboriculture Australia. If you would like to receive CEUs for today's talk, the unlock code for the quiz is SA6770. Again, SA6770. If you have other topics that you would like us to provide podcasts for, please feel free to contact Luana Vargas, the producer of this series, at the ISA office in Champaign, Illinois, or me, Tom Smiley, at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory. Thank you for listening to this episode, which was brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. Remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country, trees you know we can. Work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA.